This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, Tracy here with news about some live appearances we have coming up. Saturday, July 7th, I will be at History Camp Boston, where I will be part of the History Podcaster Panel. And then the next day, Sunday, July 8th at 2 p.m., Holly and I both will be doing a live podcast at Adams National Historical Park in Quincy, Massachusetts, where our show will be John Quincy and Louisa Catherine Adams Abroad. This is an outdoor show, and it will happen rain or shine. And we're coming back to convention days in Seneca Falls, New York. Our show is at 4 p.m. on Saturday, July 21st in the historic Wesleyan Chapel. You can get more information about all of these shows with links to buy tickets where applicable at mistinhistory.com. Click on live shows in the menu. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we have a podcast that I have started on and then stopped maybe five times (laughs) in the last five years. (laughs) Uh, But we're coming up on the 400th anniversary, so it kind of feels like I need to do it now or never. uh, We we could do this in another hundred years. Yeah, (laughs) we would be so old, Holly. (laughs) We would be robots. We would be able to really tell history from a a live perspective, though. (laughs) Yeah. So this is the much-requested Defenestrations of Prague. And just to set a little expectation, the the actual defenestrating does not take that much time. (laughs) It's a pretty simple story. Defenestrate just means to throw out of a window, and it's from the Latin word fenestra for window. Apart from sounding like it's the punchline to a joke about Daleks, there's been a surprising amount of throwing people out of windows in Czech history, and almost all of it has been connected to religious wars. So we're going to talk through all that today. Hooray! Uh, The first defenestration of Prague took place almost 100 years before the start of the Protestant Reformation. But it stemmed from the same kinds of reforms and conflicts that were part of the Reformation. 
Jan Hus was a bohemian religious reformer who was born around 1370, and his religious work overlapped the Western Schism, which was a huge dispute within the Roman Catholic Church. Here's how this dispute started. Bartolomeo Prignano was elected pope in 1378. He became Pope Urban VI, and he had been elected in part because for about 70 years, all of the popes had been French, and the papacy had been headquartered in Avignon. Romans started calling for a Roman pope, or at least an Italian one. They were tired of all these French popes. And before his election, Prignano had been serving as the archbishop of the Italian city of Bari. So he satisfied the Romans' demands for at least an Italian pope. But Urban VI was hard to get along with. He constantly butted heads with the cardinals, who had become very powerful during all those decades of French popes. So the cardinals elected one of their own as pope, Robert of Geneva, who became Clement VII. While Urban VI was pope from Rome, Clement VII was pope from Avignon. And Clement VII is regarded as an antipope, which is the term for someone who makes a competing claim to the legitimately elected pope. The election of Clement VII spawned a long series of popes and antipopes, and various kingdoms and communities sided with one or the other of them. This wasn't at all the first time in history that there had been an antipope, but this whole competing string of them and the disputes among the various states about which one was legitimate stretched on for the better part of 60 years. The Western Schism really damaged the Catholic Church's reputation. It also undermined the idea of the Pope as the supreme authority. So as the Church's power and authority were weakening, movements for reform, which had existed for almost as long as the Church had, started to become a lot more vocal. One of these reformers was Jan Milich, who established Bethlehem Chapel in Prague. Bethlehem Chapel became Prague's most popular church, and it conducted services in Czech instead of in Latin. Starting in 1402, Jan Hus was in charge of the chapel both as the preacher and as an administrator. And the chapel also became home to a national reform movement, and Hus became a leader in that movement as well. In 1409, Petros Philargos was elected pope, becoming Alexander V. He was intended to replace two competing popes. That was Gregory XII and Benedict XIII. But neither Gregory nor Benedict stepped down when Alexander was elected. So instead of one pope, there were three. This made things a lot more complicated for Jan Hus and his followers. Hus supported Alexander, but higher church officials in Bohemia still recognized the authority of Gregory. And at this point, things had already been difficult for the reform movements that Hus was part of. English theologian John Wycliffe and his followers, who were known as the Lollards, had been influential in the Bohemian movement, but a lot of Wycliffe's teachings had been condemned as heretical. Some of the movement's members had also been accused of heresy, and then some of them recanted their views. This left Hus without anybody to back him up. He was accused of heresy as well, although at first he wasn't prosecuted for it. Eventually, Pope Alexander was bribed to ban preaching in private chapels, including Bethlehem Chapel. But Hus refused to stop his work. He was excommunicated and once again charged with heresy. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a history teacher about this whole thing, and she was like, I wish Jan Hus 
had been good at giving compliment sandwiches like some of the other people who didn't wind up accused of heresy. (laughs) Because he was just like 100% on fire all the time. So then, when he refused to stop preaching, the entire city of Prague was punished. As long as he kept doing his work, none of its citizens would be allowed to receive communion or to be buried on Catholic church grounds. Finally, the Council of Constance was assembled to resolve the issue of the three competing popes and end the Western Schism, and to deal with Jan Hus. The council began in November of 1414, and Hus was summoned to appear under a letter of safe conduct. But even though the safe conduct promise was supposed to keep him from harm, Hus was tried for heresy and convicted. He was burned at the stake on July 6, 1415. After Hus's martyrdom, nobles in both Bohemia and Moravia protested what had happened. They wrote letters to the council, and they offered their protection to people who were being persecuted for their religious beliefs. Hus's followers and other like-minded reformers became known as the Hussites. These events sparked a massive movement in Bohemia. A century before the start of the Protestant Reformation, the Hussites were using a Czech-language liturgy instead of a Latin one. They were also administering communion to lay people using both bread and wine, when Catholic services reserved wine only for the clergy. One branch of the Hussites were the Utraquists, whose name means both kinds. I had no idea this dispute about receiving communion in one kind or both kinds was even a thing. (laughs) (laughs) My entire upbringing as a Methodist the dispute was, there wasn't even a dispute. There was a discussion that was more about whether to use bread that had been made or communion wafers and whether it was okay to have grape juice or wine. Like, one kind or both kinds did not even factor into it. This finally, though, brings us to throwing people out of windows. In Prague, in 1419, the city's magistrates were holding several Utrequists prisoner. And in retaliation, a group of Hussites broke into the new town hall on July 30th, and they threw several city council members and other officials out of the windows. Some of these people were killed, and the king, Wenceslas IV, died not long after this. Now, this might be apocryphal, but a number of sources say that he died of outrage because of this defenestration, or maybe of a heart attack or a stroke that was brought on by his anger over it. I feel like the word defenestration is like such a a nice convoluted way to say we did something really barbaric. <laughs> we threw them <laughs> like out the windows. A, it's a complicated word that sounds like an important and uh you know not violent thing but in fact it's tossing people out of windows. Uh anyway, this first defenestration of Prague is usually marked as the first violent incident in the Hussite wars which spanned from 1419 to 1436. Wenceslaus's successor as king of Bohemia was his half-brother, Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund, who was vehemently anti-Hussite. There's actually some debate about what his role was, but he was the person who had promised Jan Hus safe conduct to the Council of Constance, and he was suspiciously absent during the trial and execution. Even though the Hussites had huge support all over Bohemia, Sigismund took a violent stand against them, going so far as to seek a papal bull from Pope Martin V, proclaiming an anti-Hussite crusade. The Hussites fought back against not only this crusade, but also against another one that followed it. 
Peace talks began in 1431 at the Council of Basel. In 1433, a delegation of Hussites spent three months there talking about the four core freedoms they wanted, known as the Four Articles of Prague. These were the freedom to preach and worship as they wished, communion in both kinds, punishment of mortal sinners, and that the clergy should observe a vow of poverty and the church should not hold property. This was actually the more moderate set of demands. The Hussites had split into two main factions, the Utaquists and the Taborites. The Taborites were a lot more radical, and they had gone so far as to establish their own city with the hope of putting all of their beliefs into practice there. So when the Council of Basel granted the Hussites communion in both kinds, the Utrechtists were satisfied, but the Taborists were not. So then the Utrechtists joined forces with the Catholics to defeat the Taborists in 1434. It was still about two more years before the Catholics and the Utrechtists finally finished their negotiations for peace. And while there were still schisms and incidents of persecution, things stayed mostly peaceful between the Catholics and the Hussites for almost 200 years. And Jan Hus and his work went on to inspire other reformers, including Martin Luther. There was another window-throwing incident in 1483 when a Catholic mayor was thrown out of a window of the Old Town Hall. But that's not what people are usually talking about when they say the second defenestration of Prague. We will get to that one after a quick sponsor break. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
As we said earlier in the show, the first defenestration of Prague took place about 100 years before the start of the Protestant Reformation. The second one took place about 100 years after, on May 23, 1618. But we have to back up a little bit to make sense of it. The Protestant Reformation caused huge social and political upheaval in Bohemia, just like it did elsewhere in Europe. At the time, Bohemia was ruled by a collection of estates that formed the Bohemian Diet. The three estates were the lords, the knights, and the burghers. And in 1575, the king and Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian II of the House of Habsburg had promised the estates that he would tolerate at least some religious diversity. Maximilian's promise didn't really account for all of the religious diversity in Bohemia, though. He had promised to tolerate denominations that accepted the Bohemian Confession of 1575. This was more formally the Confession of Holy Christian Faith of all three estates, and it was an attempt to create a confession of faith that most people in Bohemia could agree to. The Bohemian Confession was patterned after the 1530 Confession of Augsburg, which is the primary confession of faith in the Lutheran Church. And its goal was to try to satisfy everyone, or at least as many people as possible, with one document that Bohemia could then formally recognize as the official acceptable statement of faith. It was intended to create a framework for a peaceful coexistence among the religions. The three major churches in Bohemia at the time were the Roman Catholic Church, the Utraquists, and the Unitus Fratrum, or Unity of Brethren. Both the Utraquists and the Unitus Fratrum had Hussite roots, and today the Unitus Fratrum is the Moravian Church. There were also Lutherans and other Protestants in Bohemia, but they existed in much smaller numbers. The Bohemian Confession included things that each of these religions wanted. It also avoided material that would be considered unacceptable for one or more of them. So, for example, it mentioned all of the observances that the various churches found to be sacraments, but because the Lutherans considered baptism and communion to be the only sacraments, those were the only two that were specifically mentioned as sacraments. While Maximilian II expressed his support for the Bohemian Confession, he didn't formally implement it before dying in 1575. It was his son and successor, Rudolf II, who finally made it official. Rudolf signed a document known as the Letter of Majesty on July 9, 1609. The Letter of Majesty granted all religions that accepted the Bohemian Confession freedom to worship. The letter of majesty didn't come from a benevolent desire for religious freedom, though, and Rudolf wasn't even consistent about upholding it after he signed it. In 1608, his brother, Archduke Matthias, had invaded part of Bohemia after trying to force Rudolf to abdicate. This so-called feud between the Habsburg brothers gave the Protestant estates some leverage over Rudolf. They agreed to be loyal to him in exchange for their religious freedom. So once this letter was signed, Bohemia was still officially Roman Catholic, but other religions, as long as they followed that confession, had the right to worship freely. On the same day that Rudolf signed the Letter of Majesty, Catholics and the Protestants in Bohemia also signed an agreement that laid out the details of this freedom and how they would interact with each other. 
For example, if a member of one of the higher estates wanted to install an Utraquist priest on his land, he could. And if an Utraquist lived in a Catholic parish and was attending church and tithing, he could be buried in the parish cemetery without having to seek any kind of special permission. But otherwise, Catholics and Utraquists would not be buried in one another's graveyards. So after this, Catholics and most of the Protestants coexisted mostly peacefully in Bohemia for the next few years. Although, the Utraquist church gradually faded away as more people became Lutheran. But this didn't really help Rudolf stay on the throne. He wound up ceding Bohemia to his brother Matthias in 1611, and then Matthias became the Holy Roman Emperor in 1612, Rudolf had been less tolerant of religious dissent than their father Maximilian had, and Matthias was less tolerant than his brother Rudolf had been. In 1617, the Archbishop of Prague ordered Protestant chapels that were being built in the towns of Brumov and Prague to be closed. This went directly against the freedoms that were guaranteed in the Letter of Majesty. But even so, Matthias upheld the decision to close the chapels. Not long after that, Matthias was succeeded by his cousin, Ferdinand II, and Ferdinand was devoutly Catholic. He was a major figure in the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and Ferdinand wanted to make Bohemia a strictly Catholic country. He started appointing a lot of staunch Catholics to his council. In response to all of this, Protestants in Prague called an assembly. There, they put two Catholic regents, William Slavata and Yaroslav Martinik, on trial. This assembly found the men guilty of violating the letter of majesty. And then, on May 23rd, both of them, along with their secretary, Fabricius, were thrown out the window of the Prague Council assembly room, about 50 feet, that's roughly 15 meters, off the ground. Fortunately, they landed in a giant pile of horse manure, so none of the three men were seriously harmed. And Catholic supporters saw this as miraculous evidence of divine intervention. I will keep my giggling to myself on that one. I mean, it is funnier. (laughs) Funnier than the other defenestration where people died. These guys just landed in horse poop, which would be gross, but they weren't seriously hurt. Right. It's the the miracle of, of horse manure that makes it funny. But this window-throwing incident is marked as the start of a bohemian revolt against Ferdinand II, which then grew into the Thirty Years' War. And we're going to talk more about that after we have another quick sponsor break. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Couric. I've got a ton of questions about this crazy time we're living in, and I know you probably do, too. On the new season of my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, I sit down with people at the center of the issue shaping the world around us, like the impact meat has on our health and on the environment, why the maternal mortality rate in the United States is so high, and how the 2020 presidential candidates plan to improve the lives of everyday Americans. I hope you'll join me for these fascinating conversations on the second season of Next Question. Subscribe and listen every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. The Thirty Years' War was 
so long, complicated, and convoluted that it's not really possible to do a play-by-play of it in just the last third of our show today. It would not be possible to do it in a full episode or even a two-parter. It would take an entire podcast, a new podcast that would be only about the 30 Years' War, and it would take 30 years to do it because... A lot of when you watch lectures and read books about this, a word that comes up over and over to describe it is exhausting. All of the parties involved had their own motivations and their own objectives in going to war. In some places, it was a civil war, and in other places, it wasn't. Some of the states that were involved entered the fray after they had already been at war with each other for years before that bled over into the greater conflict. All of these various actors had their own things going on. The whole thing was so far-reaching and convoluted that a lot of historians describe it as multiple different wars rather than one 30 years war. It has so many branches. It's It really is hard. It's kind of like an amoeba. Like, you can't contain it in one thing. It just keeps expanding in different directions. It's a lot. And it did start out mostly about religion. The Holy Roman Empire was Roman Catholic and had been ruled by members of the Catholic House of Habsburg since 1440. Whether the empire tolerated religious diversity depended on who was emperor. But the empire itself wasn't one monolithic entity. It was a huge hodgepodge of overlapping semi-autonomous states. And whether those states tolerated religious diversity also depended on who was ruling them. Regardless of how tolerant the individual rulers were, for the most part, they had the right to decree which religion the people should follow. And this idea had been set down in the Peace of Augsburg on September 25th, 1555. The Peace of Augsburg was an agreement between the Holy Roman Empire and the German states, some of which were Catholic and some of which were Lutheran. It put an end to violent conflict between all of these different entities. The Peace of Augsburg included the idea of cujus regio, ejus religio, or whose rule his religion. In other words, whoever ruled could choose the religion of the state, Lutheran or Catholic. Those are really the only two options in this particular agreement. This basic idea was still in play in Germany by the time the Catholic regents were thrown out the window in Bohemia. And even though the Peace of Augsburg was between the Empire and the German states, the same basic idea was followed in other parts of the Holy Roman Empire as well. And that was one of the things that led to this war. Under the Peace of Augsburg, the ruler was supposed to decide the religion, but people didn't necessarily want to follow the religion that their ruler did. Religion also played a huge part in the relationships among the various rulers and the kingdoms and the states that they controlled, both within and outside of the Holy Roman Empire. In Germany, the Catholic and Protestant states each formed their own military alliances. The Protestant Union was first, formed in 1608, and eventually it had England, the Dutch Republic, and Sweden as allies— The Catholic League was formed in 1609 in response, and the Catholic League was allied with the Habsburgs. So all these alliances were already in place by the defenestration of Prague in 1618. And for the next two years, the mostly Protestant Bohemian estates fought against the Catholic Holy Roman Empire. In 1620, Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II and the Catholic League defeated Frederick V, King of Bohemia, at the Battle of White Mountain. And as numerous historians have noted, the war could have ended there. 
Ferdinand was not satisfied with having only crushed the Bohemian Revolt, though. In 1621, he started rounding up and executing rebel leaders in Prague. He ordered the remaining Protestants to either be exiled or to convert, and soon Britain, Denmark, and the Dutch Republic had all entered the war. For about 10 years, the Catholics still had the upper hand. But then Sweden joined on the Protestant side in 1630, and the Protestants rallied for about four years. Then, in 1634, a Spanish army defeated the main force from Sweden, once again giving the Catholic side the advantage. That's when France, a Catholic country, joined the fray on the Protestant side. From France's point of view, it was more important to resist the Habsburgs and the Empire and Spain than to stay on the same side as all the other Catholic states. And then from here on out, the Thirty Years' War became more and more about territory and politics while becoming less and less directly about religion. Over time, the major powers began hiring mercenaries to supplement their armies, and there were atrocities on all sides. One of the war's most infamous incidents was the massacre of Magdeburg when the Empire and the Catholic League sacked the Protestant city of Magdeburg and killed about 20,000 civilians. Fighting on the Catholic side were a mercenary light infantry known as the Croats, who became the fighting force most often associated with the war. Although some of the Croats were Croatian at the time, this was more of a generic word for the type of light cavalry that they were in. Its actual members were from other ethnic groups as well. And it's also where the word cravat comes from, after a French word for the scarves that they wore as part of their uniforms. All of the major powers in Western Europe were ultimately involved in the Thirty Years' War, and there was fighting in their American colonies as well but a disproportionate amount of the fighting took place in Germany, and this led to colossal losses for Germany. As much as 20% of the German population was killed. And this was not just losses from battle. As troops moved from one place to another, they commandeered food and other resources, and a lot of the time, they just left people to starve. Disease also spread rapidly along with the armies. There was never really a concrete winner of this drawn-out, complicated conflict. Peace talks went on at the Congregation of Westphalia for more than five years, from 1643 to 1648. Negotiations took place in the Westphalian towns of Munster and Onsebruck, and they involved 200 different rulers and thousands of other officials. The only European powers not involved were the Ottoman Empire, England, Poland, and Russia. First, they spent six months just on matters of procedure, like who was going to sit where and who had precedence when entering the room. From there, negotiations started by addressing issues that were specific to Germany. More international peace negotiations took place from October 1645 to April of 1646. And for most of the rest of it, the negotiations were about religion. The war didn't stop during the peace talks, though. Uh, They kept going on with all the fighting. And during the later years, France was actively trying to undermine the peace talks because some of the terms that had been agreed to were going to leave it vulnerable to attack from Spain. The war finally ended with the Peace of Westphalia, which redistributed a lot of territory in Europe, basically redrawing the map. 
It also recognized the United Provinces of the Netherlands and the Swiss Confederation as independent republics. And it confirmed and expanded on the Peace of Augsburg, adding Calvinism to the list of tolerated religions. So at least in theory, Lutherans, Calvinists, and Catholics could all worship freely. And those were the three primary religions in Europe at the time. But... Austrian territory wasn't included in this religious freedom, and the Peace of Westphalia also didn't recognize the Hussite religions that we talked about in earlier parts of the show. They weren't Lutheran, Calvinist, or Catholic, so they continued to not be recognized as allowable religions, and their members continued to face religious persecution. Throughout this war, military forces in Europe got much bigger, even before the widespread use of mercenaries. All of the major European powers also got a lot of administrative experience managing these ever-increasing militaries. They applied that newfound knowledge to governance. These loosely connected groups of semi-autonomous political units that had been part of the Holy Roman Empire started to coalesce into the nations as we think of them today. This is connected to another element of the Peace of Westphalia, The agreements recognized the sovereignty of all the member states of the Holy Roman Empire. The Peace of Westphalia gave each one the right to negotiate with the others on their own behalf as long as that wouldn't somehow damage the Holy Roman Empire. And this was a massive change. It set the stage for today's international model of independent nations that are all at least on paper equal on the world stage. I mean, different nations obviously have different amounts of power and wealth, but the bigger countries aren't getting multiple votes in the UN just because they're bigger. It's not how it works. The idea that nation states have exclusive sovereignty over their own territory and have equal rights to that sovereignty is even called Westphalian sovereignty. The power structure within these nations also changed. Although nations continued to have official religions, those religions had less political power. A monarchy might still be rooted in the idea that the monarch had a divine right to rule, and the law might still have a heavy religious influence. Religious persecution still existed, but it was far less common for the church and the state to be essentially the same, almost inseparable thing. And of course, there was still plenty of war to go around after the Peace of Westphalia. France and Spain continued to be actively at war with each other from the time the treaty was signed until 1659, They hadn't been able to actually negotiate with each other much during the peace talks in Westphalia because they couldn't agree on the protocol to do it. So in all those six months of negotiations about who sat where and who got to come into the room first, France and Spain could not get it together. Multiple other wars also started in the years after this treaty, but they tended to be more about territory, trade, resources, and colonialism than specifically and directly about religion. And all of that started with three people being thrown out a window, along with the hundreds of years of religious warfare that happened before that. So other people have also been thrown out of windows in Prague since the second defenestration, but none of them is really considered to be an official third one. The most widely known is the death of Jan Masaryk on March 10th, 1948. He was the son of T.G. Masaryk, the first president of the Czechoslovak Republic, and he was the only non-communist member of that government. He was found beneath a window at the Czechoslovak Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and it's not clear whether he fell, jumped, or was thrown out of that window. 
And on that upbeat note, (laughs) what you got cooking in listener mail? I have some mail that goes back to our episode about the Bisbee deportations. And this is from Francesca, who says, Dear Holly and Tracy, my name is Francesca, and I just started listening to the podcast not too long ago, but I've been really enjoying it. I had to write in after listening to the podcast on the Bisbee deportations. I lived in Arizona for a little while as a child and had visited Bisbee several times, but I never knew the deportations had even happened, so it was interesting to learn something about an area I've actually been to. My main reason for writing is to comment on something you mentioned briefly. You mentioned that the mining industry was starting to shift over to more open pit mining at that point. My father is a geologist. She goes on to talk about her father working for a company that was actually owned by Phelps Dodge. She goes on to say, even in the 90s, when they were when we were living there, the company owned the houses, much like they did at Bisbee, and there was a company store. There wasn't a hospital there, but there was a clinic for anything, and in, for anything more severe, you had to go to Stafford, which was about an hour away, if I'm remembering right. I don't remember a lot about it since we lived there when I was six to eight years old, but I did have the chance to go on a mine tour when my grandparents visited, which my father arranged. You have no idea of the scale of the operation there, and it was neat to be able to see a part of what my father did for his job. It was cool to hear Phelps Dodge mentioned in this podcast since that's a company I haven't heard of since my father left them in 1999 to work for a different company. So thank you for the fascinating history lesson and a blast from the past. Sincerely, Francesca. Thank you, Francesca, for writing this email to us. I also wanted to mention, on a number of occasions that are a mystery to me, instead of calling the IWW the industrial workers of the world, which as it's is its name... <laughs> I typed into the outline the completely incorrect word, international. It is not called the international workers of the world. It is the industrial workers of the world. And a couple of people who have pointed that out mentioned that it's a common mistake, (laughs) which uh, I don't quite understand how it's a common mistake because it makes the name sort of redundant to say the international workers of the world. So anyway, I apologize for making that er error that either I read somewhere and just absorbed incorrectly or just typed the completely wrong word in the outline. Either way. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest, all of those at Missed in History. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you'll find the show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together. You will find a searchable archive of every episode we have ever done. And you can find and subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you get podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This is Danny Shapiro, host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. 
I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.